0: Here at Calvary Chopper Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Of course, once again in our study of Matthew, we're making our way through here. Jesus, in his last week of his earthly life and ministry. So we'll pick up this morning in Matthew chapter 26, in verse 36. If you have your Bibles, we'd encourage you to turn there this morning. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one off of the back table. And it's here in Matthew 26, verse 36, where we see Jesus and his disciples, at least most of them, Judas is now absent, making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. We've come now from the Passover meal. Jesus had just celebrated the Passover meal. Uh, That that meal wherein Jesus, being very excited to celebrate that meal with them, had declared, here this, this tradition that you have been celebrating for generations, that you are familiar with, the first Passover happening there in Egypt before they crossed over the Red Sea into their time of wilderness wanderings. Jesus now saying, What you have come to know is this celebration, the the the, the Passover lamb, that that time when God miraculously delivered you. He says, That is me. It's there at the Passover meal that in the breaking of bread, he says, This is my body broken for you, and the in the drinking of the cup, the third cup of wine at that meal. Uh, the cup of redemption, Jesus saying, this is my blood shed for you. He declares it's a new covenant. Jesus, in effect, says, I'm the Passover lamb. As John the Baptist declared, the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so no doubt the disciples, their minds and their hearts are still probably spinning as they're continuing to connect much of what Jesus has declared to them over these past three years and, and even over the past week as, as Jesus has uh, taught them consistently through the course of the week. And now they're making their way from that meal over. They're coming down from the city of David. They'll go through the Kidron Valley across the brook Kidron, the brook that was already running red with the blood of sacrifices that were being made that week. They cross over there, and they're making their way up the side of the Mount of Olives and going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, some of you have been to the Garden of Gethsemane. I've been there myself, and it's a beautiful place. It's a peaceful place. Now, within the garden, we don't know, of course, where it was specifically that Jesus and his disciples were but it is a garden that is filled with olive trees very old olive trees and it's in this place where just like the olives that would be pressed upon and and wherein the oil would run from them that our Savior himself would find himself in the press as it were the Gethsemane literally means oil press okay so it's here in this garden amongst all the olive trees that Jesus would begin to feel the weight, the pressure of His imminent suffering, of His trial and of His crucifixion. The weight of the coming events beginning to bear down upon Him, to crush Him. And, and today, we are going to seek to learn from Jesus and his experience in the garden and the events that follow that night. We'll look also at some of how Peter is involved in this, in some respects, even comparing and contrasting the two. And I would title this message for us this morning, Lessons from Gethsemane. If you're taking notes, we'll see four key lessons that I want us to identify in this passage here this morning. And, and I'll tell you, you know, when we go to a passage like this, this is a passage that can be pretty heavy. And it ought to be. The the worst thing that can happen to us in our faith as we study Scripture is to become too familiar with it. So familiar with events that changed history. For us, as we consider this chapter here today, and we consider this time in Jesus' life here on this earth, I would submit to you that this is probably the toughest thing that Jesus had to go through. You might say, well, what about the crucifixion itself? Listen, when he goes, and you'll see this here, I think, as we make our way through this passage, when he makes his way to the cross, he's already set at that point. It's not to suggest that it's not going to be difficult, but it's here in the garden that Jesus really has to deal with, am I going to do this? And so for us, I think we really have to look at this and to the extent that we're able, try to grasp the weight of what's happening here in these verses. We read in in verse 36, it says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And so it seems here that Jesus had uh, his 11, now, disciples with him. Again, Judas, as we will see, had slipped away somewhere between the end of dinner and their journey over. And so of the 11, then, that have gone with him to the garden, he takes three a little bit further, Peter, James, and John. Now, these are the same three that he had taken with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, you might ask, why did he take Peter, James, and John further? The answer would be, we, we don't know for sure. It, it certainly seems that these three had a special place with Jesus, a special friendship with Jesus. They'd been with him from the beginning. Uh, they were some of the first that he had called. And again, he had taken them to the Mount of Transfiguration, where they'd experienced an aspect of his divine glory. Maybe now, maybe here in this moment, And I only speculate here, but perhaps he wanted them to also witness an aspect of his humanity. Because Jesus was troubled. Whatever glory that they had seen earlier on the Mount of Transfiguration, it would not appear the same on this night. Here in this moment, for them, all they would see in between their moments of napping as they struggled to stay awake would be Jesus entirely overwhelmed. It would not be until later, when we also have the benefit of looking back, that they would be able to comprehend the glory of God-made man that was indeed fully on display here in the garden. To them this night, they would see a man who was struggling. Now it says here in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus was sorrowful, that He was troubled, that He was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. If one of your closest friends came to you and in a moment of crisis communicated to you that they were in agony, that they were overwhelmed to the point of death, you would likely consider that to be a very deep state of depression. I don't think it can be overestimated the the agony that Jesus was experiencing here in the garden. Luke's Gospel tells us that that Jesus was in agony. That His sweat was, became like great drops of blood. You know, Our study of the body tells us that in fact this is a condition that can occur when someone is under such extreme stress that the sweat glands would constrict under great pressure and produce so much sweat that it would become mixed with blood. His own physiological response was communicating the pressure he was under. We see here in verse 39 that as Jesus went a little further, He fell to His face. In Luke's Gospel, He's on His knees. In Mark, He, he, he falls. In Matthew, He's on His face. And, and I think what we see here throughout the Gospels uh, is that this willing Savior is in the process of falling to His face. He's going down. In agony, the weight of what is about to happen begins to entirely overwhelm him. I would think even at this point, as we just consider what I've just communicated, it should cause us to take seriously what we're reading here. Now it says, verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me yet not as I will, but as you will. Why is Jesus so troubled? Is it the fact that shortly He will endure a level of physical suffering, abuse, humiliation, and an unjust and unfair treatment, the likes of which we, we could never truly understand? Is it, is it all of those things? Well, I would say certainly that's part of the weight of what He's experiencing of what's pressing upon Him. But it is so much more than that. Now, some of you who may be more familiar with this passage, maybe you've heard a message on this a time or two, you, you've, you've studied it yourself, you come to learn probably, and, and most do understand that what Jesus is struggling with, perhaps more than those things that, that are physical, is, is the spiritual here. That, that He will, in fact, experience separation from God the Father, separation that he's never experienced before on a part of sin, our sin, sin that Jesus had never known as the perfect man, that he would now take that sin upon himself. And so I do believe that this is the greater pressure that is upon him that is causing him agony, causing such physical distress, but even then, one might ask, well, why? Why is, the, why is the weight of sin, which in some respects is not even tangible, so heavy upon him? And you see, such a question, which I've asked myself throughout time, speaks to the fact that we are so well acquainted with our own sin, even comfortable in it at times, that we cannot relate to what Jesus is going to be going through by experiencing sin. That himself. Even when we are in a place perhaps of great remorse and repentance, we even still are far too comfortable with separation from God to even begin to understand. But here's the thing, we must, we must try to understand that. It is incumbent upon us to do our best to understand what it is that Jesus is doing, what it is that He is accomplishing, what it means to be so overwhelmed by the weight of sin, because to do so is then to begin to understand, even even in a small bit, the depth of His mercy and of His grace toward us. You see, Jesus prays, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from Me. He says, in other words, Lord, is there any other way is there any other possibility? Why is he asking this? You know, I think some people in this situation, they look at this and they go, well, well, Jesus understood what was happening. He knew what was ahead of him. Is, why, why does he seem as if he now is trying to figure out another plan? Well, see, Proverbs 17, verse 15. It's a, it's a passage that we can often just sort of overlook. Like if you're taking notes, write this down. Proverbs 17, verse 15 says this acquitting the guilty and condemning the just both are detestable to the Lord. Now You might hear that and go, well wait a second. I mean that's essentially the work of the gospel is it not? The difference of course here would be that acquitting the guilty would suggest, well, what is an acquittal? It means that you're off the hook. No punishment. right? No consequence. You're good. It's covered. It's taken care of. And what Sometimes, I think, when we look at the gospel and when we consider our own sin, we kind of think maybe that that's what's happened. And when we do, we miss something very important. Now, as we look at this and we read, acquitting the guilty, we must understand we are the guilty. And and what we do know of the gospel is that, as a Christian, I am no longer guilty. And, And condemning the just, well, I know that I'm not just, he is. And he's the one that was condemned. And so as I read this, I can't help but say, well, Well, what's going on here? Because these things that I live in light of today, the truth that I live in light of is detestable to God. We need to better understand that. And so let's understand something clearly here. Because so often it is our nature being so acquainted with our sin that while we now know that it is sin, even as God reveals these things to us and we come to Him in repentance, we still, I believe in selfishness, yes, in selfishness, still at times just kind of think of Jesus as just loving us so much that He's willing to just take care of our sin for us. Now this, please understand, this is true, okay? Don't misunderstand me, but... Rest assured, what is about to go down in terms of the work of the cross, what Jesus here is wrestling with, I believe is far more than what we ever really give credit to. And the work of the cross is as much for God as it was for us. What do I mean by that? Well, let's continue reading on here in verse 40. we read: Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now we're going to come back to these two verses here in a little bit. First, if you would, just continue on with me. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. You see, so, so Jesus here, in his agonizing prayer time, comes to check on the disciples to see if they were praying with him. And listen, there is purpose in this. There's very much purpose in him checking on them and whether or not they are praying. But now, Jesus, he goes back to pray again, and he prays similarly But now his prayer progresses from, if it is possible, Lord, if there's any other way to, Father, if it's not possible, understanding now because of his time in prayer, because remember Jesus, fully God, fully man, had also veiled some of his divine attributes and surrendered them to the will of the Father. So throughout his life and his ministry, he spent regular time seeking the Father. He said, I came to do the will of my Father. And here as he's spending time in prayer already, an hour seeking the Lord, He's coming to an understanding. No, there's not any other way. If it's not possible, may your will be done. It would seem here again that Jesus, in an effort as always to align His will to the Father, was troubled greatly over the coming events, but He sees them as necessary nonetheless. Why? Because sin is detestable to God. And those who who sin are guilty. Jesus understands this. Jesus is understanding that there must be a punishment for sin. That the guilty are not to be acquitted. That that is detestable. As we we read there in Proverbs, yet, yet Jesus is understanding that this is what they're working towards. Redemption, reconciliation. That He's working towards forgiveness for us. Our forgiveness. But here's the thing. As Jesus is wrestling in this, wrestling uh, in, in, in prayer to the Father. What he is identifying for us is that forgiveness is a problem for God. David Platt writes this, God's forgiveness of our sin is a threat to his character. The cross is God's answer to a divine problem. The cross vindicates God's character before it rescues us. Are you you with me? The cross is first about God before it's about us. When he comes back, verse 43, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Jesus comes and goes a third time. This time he doesn't even attempt to wake them up. And he says again, Father, if it's not possible, he is... It cannot be overstated that he is wrestling with this. Why is he wrestling with this? Because everything that's about to happen is an affront to his character. That's why we can't just simply say, well, praise God, he loves me so much, he dealt with my sin. No, it's so much deeper than that. We cannot truly comprehend the difficulty of what was about to be endured because all of this flies in the face of God. We must ask the question, Christian, you still should daily ask the question, how is it that a holy and righteous God can love sinners like us? It boggles my mind that in the world today, those who don't know God, there's many things that the the church wrongly expects people who don't know God to do, right? Listen, if if somebody doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're going to do foolish things. Christians are going to do foolish things. Why do we expect the unsaved world to act like they're saved? That's silly. But one of the things that boggles my mind is when people and and, and those who don't know God, when they do look around the world and they go, oh, well, how can a loving God allow all this to happen? How selfish and short-sighted. We should be asking a question of how in the midst of all of this could a God in heaven love us? John Stott writes this, forgiveness is for God the profoundest of problems. Why? Because if God is a righteous judge which he is, if he's a good judge, which he is, then there must be justice. There must be. And we know that in our world today, people cry out for justice. And they should know, the world should know, it's God's, it's his heart too. His character demands justice, but his character, so far different than our own, is willing to, in humility, satisfy it through other means. Chief of which is His own Son, Jesus. And how would this then satisfy it? Because someone would take the due punishment for our sins. Someone must drink that cup. The cup of wrath that would be poured out. Jesus in His wrestling with God was not saying, can there be another way so that I don't have to endure this torture, this physical torture. Jesus in His wrestling with God is trying to reconcile how how are we going to how are we going to deal with the problem of sin how are we going to reconcile this need for forgiveness if that means that i then need to take sin upon myself the innocent become guilty to experience separation from god the father and here's the thing in this world of ours that that has become so enamored with these ideas of of like canceling debt, right? This idea is becoming so popular. Just cancel it. It's done, right? There's no more debt. Listen, it's not Monopoly money. The debt is still somewhere, okay? You may write it out. You may try to erase it. It's not my debt anymore. It's somebody's debt. Somebody has to pay it. That's the way this works, okay? It's no different here. We, we rejoice all day long, and I'm not trying to minimize that unless our rejoicing is, is misplaced. To think somehow, oh, my sin is gone, praise God. If you think that somehow it's just like, oh, it's, just, it's, just, it's gone, you know, it just poof, disappeared. Well, then you're missing a huge part of the Gospel. The, 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 the sin and the consequences of sin, He took it. He dealt with it. This cup that Jesus is asking, could it pass? It was not the cup of physical pain. It was the cup of damnation that we deserve, not Him. Charles Spurgeon writes this, The whole of the punishment of His people was distilled into one cup. No mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When He put it to His own lips, it was so bitter, He well nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from Me but His love for His people was so strong that He took the cup in both hands, and at one tremendous draft of love He drank damnation dry. For all His people, He drank it all. He endured it all. He suffered all. So that now forever there are no flames of hell for them, no racks of torment. They have no eternal woes. Christ hath suffered all they ought to have suffered, and they must. They shall go free. Amen? Listen, Christian, if there is ever a day in your life where you find yourself apathetic, or you find yourself in just the busyness of your day such that you do not give praise for what it is that He has accomplished on your behalf, if you do not simply and foundationally each and every day say, Lord, thank You for saving me, a sinner who deserved to die. Because of You, Lord, today, no matter what is going on, I am blessed then you need to repent. We need to repent. And I'm not suggesting that I don't have those days myself. And if I do, I need to repent. Because He is worthy of our praise. Of daily to say, I am blessed for what you have done for me. Furthermore, that the knowledge of that and the constant reflection upon that would cause us to so despise our sin and our tendencies to fall back into it. That we would have knowledge of our sin because to do so would then be to know once again His mercy and His grace. The more we reflect then upon how deep His love for us is, how extensive His mercy is for us, His grace for us, of how terrible our sin is and the consequences of our sin. When we are acquainted with the reality of that, our knowledge of who He is and what He's done is so much greater. And that lends itself then to our worship of Him. So much of the church today has has begun to look at Jesus as just sort of this motivational speaker, this life coach. So little mention of sin, yet all the blessings of salvation. Yet the greatest difficulty that we see in the life of Jesus and in His ministry on this earth, was this? It's in this moment, Jesus being willing to take our sin. And it's a work of Satan in this world today that he distracts us from it. I mentioned we had four lessons from our study here today. The first lesson would be this. It is sin that has always been the problem. We must understand that. It it is sin that has always been the problem. Now, in John, in chapter 12, verse 27 through 28, Jesus says, He says, "Now, Now my soul is troubled. If I can get the, the, the tone correct here, it's as if Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, but what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. And so you see, Jesus, despite His difficulties here in the garden, His wrestling with what was about to occur, knew why He had come. And, and though, yes, He works through this, and wants to consider, is there any other possibility? He says, what am I going to say? This is why I'm here. And yes, the physical suffering would be a great trial, but Jesus knew that he would endure. Jesus had already told him he would rise again. But to be a part of enduring sin, to be a part of this seemingly perverted form of justice that was an affront to his own character, that required true humility and submission. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 5, verse 8, Hebrews 5, 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus, fully God, fully man, learned in his life and ministry on this earth to be obedient. And so then he serves as an example of, uh, to us of how to do the same. And this begins to lend itself to our second lesson. Let's read on first. Verse 45, Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. After an agonizing time of prayer for Jesus and a difficult time of staying awake for the disciples, Jesus says, Are you still sleeping and resting? The hour has come. What was the hour? It's the time when Jesus would be betrayed into the hands of sinners, when the gross injustice of his unfair trial, conviction, and judgment would take place in order that true and necessary justice could occur. But first, Jesus returns to them and troubled, he says, are you still sleeping and resting? Now, I think sometimes we look at the account in the garden of him coming and checking on the disciples, and, you know, it's late, and they've eaten the meal, and they're kind of dozing off, and, and we sort of find this as uh, this interesting interaction that, that almost causes us to go, yeah, I, you know, I do that too. See, other people have had trouble staying awake while they pray. It's tough to stay awake, and you might be inclined to go, oh, silly disciples, isn't it funny here? They just keep dozing off. But I think what we need to understand here is that this is not included simply so that we have this encouragement to to pray, that somehow prayer is just this virtue. Hey, remember, stay awake and pray. No, there was purpose in this. Go back to verses 40 and 41 for a moment. It says, Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, the amazing thing is that our Savior in the midst of one of the more agonizing moments of His life on this earth was still about making sure that His disciples were ready. You know, you could say as I alluded to earlier on that in some respects the work was done here in the garden. Yes, was Jesus and His sacrifice upon the cross still necessary? Absolutely. But as Jesus comes out of the garden here, He's ready. We'll see him shortly as he stands before Caiaphas, and next week as he stands before Pilate, and as he's beaten within an inch of his life, skin literally ripped off of his back to where you could see bone. He's barely alive anymore, and he picks up a wooden cross and he carries it up a mountain and willingly climbs upon it. And he does all of that willingly in absolute submission because of this time right here, because he was readied in the flesh. He says, The Spirit is willing. But the flesh is weak. Jesus knew that. That's why he became a man. The Son of God took on flesh. The author of Hebrews tells us elsewhere in chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows that the flesh is weak. Why is that a problem? Because It's the flesh that will keep us from doing what the Spirit wants us to do. Falling into temptation. So what does Jesus do about it? He prays. and being prayed up, He's able to surrender to what He needs to do, to the will of the Father, and move forward obediently. So here He's not just trying to teach the disciples to pray because it's a good discipline to have. He's saying you need to pray because your Spirit is willing. Peter, you said you'd die for me. But your flesh is weak. You're actually going to deny me. And I might add, and and maybe you wouldn't have if you'd prayed with me. Friends, I wonder how many of us are about to face some lesser Gethsemane, but nevertheless, a situation where we are pressed and where we wrestle with God's plan versus our desire. And will we come out readied for the hour or will we crumble? Would Jesus come to any one of us today and say, are you still sleeping? I talked with one of our elders yesterday. We had a, a an elder retreat, a great time of, of fellowship and prayer. And one of the things we talked about during this time was uh, elements that I think are applicable from this passage. And one of the things I said is, you know, there's, sometimes there's topics or there's certain messages and, and you find yourself as a pastor saying, man, I don't I don't want to teach that. <laughs> That's depressing, right? I mean, you, you, you'd... You're like, I don't want people to leave going, that was a bummer, right? But here's the problem. If we, as Christians today, don't look around, not just the world, but our own country, and not recognize that there's a real threat of significant persecution about to come upon us, then you've got your head in the sand. And that doesn't mean that we need to fear Scripture tells us not to. That doesn't mean that we need to worry. Jesus tells us not to. That doesn't mean that we need to have anxiety or freak out. Scripture tells us, just look up. Look to Him. But it does call us to be ready. It calls us to be ready. And if persecution does begin to come upon us in this country to the degree that I believe it will, because it's already started, nobody can say that there's not persecution now in our country. For a long time, people wanted to say it was persecution, and it was just, oh, you're inconvenienced right now. But now there's legitimate persecution that's happening against the church. No, it's not to the degree that we've seen in other parts of the world. But it is coming. And I can't help but think in this culture in which we've got six Christian radio stations to choose from. When I go and turn on the radio in my car, one loses signal, I can move on to the other one. And, here, you know, and stuff that it's like, we take this for, for granted, right? We've got churches on every corner. And I wonder when persecution really begins to hit, will many of these churches across the country be empty? Where will the Christians be? We've got to be ready. Jesus was telling them, guys, could you not stay awake? The hour's here. While he was still speaking, verse 47, Judas, one of the twelve arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. You see, in the ultimate offense, Judas not only betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he sells him out, but he comes in with a kiss, like a dagger just right into his back. He twists it for good measure. Yet Jesus here replies, verse 50, Do what you came for, friend. Was Jesus being sarcastic? I don't think so. Later, Judas will take his own life as the guilt of his actions become fully realized. And I think we can just say that this breaks Jesus' heart. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested Him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us who it is, but we know from John's tell-all gospel (laughs) that this was Peter. And Jesus says in verse 42, Put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Here's an amazing thing that Jesus says in verse 53. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? There's a couple of things I want us to see here quickly, sort of just side points here. The first of which is notice that Jesus condemns the use of the sword here. Now, am I saying that to somehow use this as a proof text to say that Jesus is against all violence all violence and weapons? No, I'm not. Listen, we've we got to take the whole counsel of God, and we know that elsewhere, even Jesus Himself instructs the disciples to buy a sword, to take one with them. What we must understand, though, within context, is that He's saying for self-defense and or for defending those who are defenseless. That is biblical, always has been, always will be, and should be. But violence for the propagation of the gospel is not. And sadly, that's happened far too often in the church's history. Secondly here, note this. And this should be of such great encouragement to us. The resources here that are at Jesus, uh, that are at His disposal. Twelve legions of angels. A Roman legion was roughly 6,000. What Jesus is saying here is like this. At a moment's notice, I can have 72,000 angels here to fight for me. And listen, these aren't the, uh, the little, little baby cherubim, chubby little things floating around, okay? Because that might not seem, oh, cute, right? No, these are warrior angels. Warrior angels that would come ready to pick a fight. That should absolutely just give you goosebumps. Because here's the thing, these are resources still at God's disposal today. Do you know that God has the resources to do what He wants to do, Christian? That was too weak. Yes? Okay. So here's the thing. Jesus here says, it must happen this way. Jesus has said after his time, praying to God the Father, surrendering himself to the will of the Father, yet still saying, Look, I could do it this way, but this is the way that it has to be. How much more then should we, as we surrender our lives, our wills to the Father, say, God, you can do whatever you want to do. This huge thing that's sitting right in front of me, God, I know you have the resources to deal with this, but not my will. Yours be done, Lord. Amen? He was surrendered. In verse 55, In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion? That you'll come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this is all taking place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus here is saying, Seriously, guys? I mean, that's really what he's, he's going. Well, this is a little bit too much. A little unnecessary. Nevertheless, this is the way... It has to go. Jesus being surrendered here gives us our second lesson for this morning. Lesson number two is effective prayer time should result in our submission to God's will and God's plan. Listen, guys, as you spend time in prayer, effective prayer time should result in our submission to God's will and God's plan you look at the way in which verse 56 ends here, it's on a very somber note as we read, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Not long before this, just after dinner, as recorded in verse 31, Jesus had said, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. Yet all of them at that time said, no, no way, we're not going to do it. We'll never deny you. Yet here they all leave. And so these words were fulfilled. Jesus' hour had come, the time when He, all alone, would in obedience do what He had come to do. But He prayed, and He was ready for this final trial in His earthly life and ministry. But the disciples, their hour of temptation had come as well, but sadly, they were not ready. And those who had laid hold of Jesus, verse 57, led Him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed Him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now to Peter's credit, unlike the others, he follows after. Albeit he's at a distance here. Maybe he's thinking he can go and save Jesus. Uh, Maybe he just wants to see simply what's going to happen here. We don't know. Whatever he's doing, though, we can be confident he's doing it in the flesh. He's not ready. Verse 59, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. False witness after false witness after false witness. Finally, Caiaphas hears what he was looking for. And the high priest rose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. The ironies of this phony trial are so numerous. As Jesus, in great demonstration of His meekness, remember meekness, strength under control, He says not a word until in a manner that almost serves to secure His own conviction, declares a future act of judgment that will come upon them. As Jesus says in verse 64, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus, in effect, says, I am who you say I am. And though you stand in judgment over me now, there will come a day when I will come and judge the entire world. Of course, this really ticks the high priest off. Verse 65, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. And so in verse 67, they spat in His face. They beat Him. Others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. So here, while Jesus and his trial unfolds inside, Peter's essentially begins outside, and it's not nearly the display of composure that we see with Jesus, as merely here a little servant girl comes to Peter, suggesting that he had been with Jesus. But in verse 70, He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. Peter, who was ready to die, who was cutting off ears, is now running from a little girl. So not only does Peter distance himself from Jesus in word, but also physically as he now moves further out from the courtyard and away from Jesus. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. Here another girl approaches, saying that Peter had been with Jesus, yet he denies it all the more, this time with an oath. Verse 72, again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, verse 73, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Here a small crowd is beginning to gather, and they say to Peter, you're a Galilean, you have the accent, you got to know the guy. To which Peter, in verse 74, began to curse and to swear, saying, I do not know the man. Here, Peter, reaching the climax of his denial, in effect, says, May I be damned to hell. I don't know this man. And you see, for Peter, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. Jesus had tried to prepare him and the others. But as the pressure came and the intensity of the trial increased, as much as Peter had said, never, I won't deny you, in the weakness of his flesh, he buckled in his time of temptation. And I wonder again, what about us? Are we ready? Our third lesson this morning is this. The flesh always fails in the time of temptation. And this can apply in so many different ways. And if you think for a second that you've been beating whatever it is that's tempting you in the strength of your own flesh, it's just a matter of time and you're playing with fire. It's the Spirit that gives victory. And at this moment, immediately a rooster crowed and Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and he wept bitterly. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us out in a short song. And Here in this moment, the weight of Peter's failure was now fully upon him. And it was too much to bear. We can only imagine the thoughts and emotion as he weeps. But here's the thing, as we come to this place and we consider the fact that sin, yes, has always been the problem, that Jesus willingly drank the cup that was ours to drink, that He deals with the problem of sin even though it's an affront to His own character. As we consider perhaps our own failures in, in prayer, our own, our own failures to, to ready the flesh to do what it is that the Spirit wants us to do. As we consider our own times in which we, we fail and we give in to temptation as depressing as those times in our lives might be. There's a beautiful thing that begins to happen in this moment for Peter. Because it was this moment, and this was a very necessary moment as Jesus was birthing his church, that it was in this moment that it was giving way for repentance and reconciliation. This was a necessary thing for Peter to step into who and what God had created him to be. And so it is for us. And so our final lesson, lesson number four this morning is this, that the cross of Christ reconciles. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? You see, it was in this moment, and it's often in ours, perhaps on more than one occasion, where we will, willing, where we will be brought to a necessary place of brokenness before Him so that in that moment we can begin to understand our need for Him and our need for His grace and for His mercy. And as we rightly understand that, then we can step into the role or become the individual that He's created us to be. We don't have time to consider it here today, but we know that after the resurrection, Peter will have the opportunity to sit and have breakfast with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And as he sits there, Jesus will ask him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. And feed my sheep. And I'll ask him again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And this almost agitated at this point and surprised. Yes, Lord, I love you. Do, and I, and I these are my words, do what I've called you to do. You're ready now, Peter. You're ready to do what I've called you to do. And we see such a change in this man. If you weren't here Wednesday night, I would encourage you to, to go back and listen to Wednesday's night's message only because I think it will complement this well because we see a similar situation with Abraham as Abraham's brought to a, very, a, a place very close to where we are right here, to where God says Abraham, I'm going to test your faith. In other words, he says, I'm going to prove your faith. I'm going to show you right now what you can now do because of who I've made you to be. Listen, sin has always been the problem. We need to be aware of that. And we need to, in obedience, come before God the Father to spend time in prayer to allow Him to do a work in our lives to ready our flesh so that it can do what the Spirit wants us to do so that we won't fail in time of temptation so that we can step into who He's called us to be. But be encouraged also, though we have many failures, the cross of Christ reconciles. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks, Lord, for this time here this morning, Lord. We give you thanks for who you are. And Lord, may we recognize this morning that we may not even have scratched the surface, Lord, of all that we can know. And so may you, Lord, in your kindness, continue to give us understanding and insight and perspective, Lord, to the depths of your love for us, of your grace and of your mercy. That it would compel us, Lord, to serve you all the more, to follow after you with greater intensity and greater fervor. Father, we love you and praise you. We give you thanks here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.